Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our Shabbat study. Today is Shabbat Miketz, and it's our portion that comes in chapter 41 of Genesis. And we're in the period of telling the story of Joseph down in Egypt and what happens to him there and how he becomes the viceroy of Egypt, second in charge of Egypt after Pharaoh and about how his brothers come to visit him in Egypt to buy grain, food, because of a famine in the land. And it explains those parts of it, of what transpires with his brothers coming to Egypt. Let's begin at chapter 41, and at verse 1 it reads as follows. Now, it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile, and lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them for the, from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the banks of the Nile. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump ears and full ears. Then Pharaoh woke, and behold, it was a dream. Now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men, and Pharaoh told them he had had these dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them in Pharaoh, to Pharaoh. Um, so Pharaoh has a couple of dreams here, and he's intrigued as to what is the meaning uh, of them. And before we go any further, I want to remind you that Joseph, earlier in his life, when he was back at home, he had a couple of dreams. And he had dreams that were in, it was about him and his brothers and his family. And so Joseph already has had the experience of having dreams and, and dealing with them. However, he hasn't seen the fulfillment of those dreams yet, but he knew the dreams said that there was a day coming when his other brothers would bow down to him. And in fact, in the second one, uh, which was the one about the stars, uh, bowing down to his star, and he mentioned the sun and the moon, even Jacob understood the meaning of the dream is that you would have even your father and your mother bow down to you. And, uh, of course, at that point, that seems like a very inappropriate thing. It sounds like it's more about his ego than it is about something that's prophetic. The one good thing it says about Jacob was that he pondered the dream in his heart. In other words, he didn't necessarily agree with what it was suggesting, but he had to take it into account. Let's, let's see what happens. Let's ponder it in our heart. Let's see what happens. And the same thing is with Joseph. He has these dreams. And it affects him. And later on, he's now coming to the point where his dreams are about to be made manifest at the same time, he's going to be interpreting a couple of dreams for Pharaoh. In the rest of this chapter, we're going to hear some very interesting statements being made about dreams and how 
what are some of the rules of interpreting dreams. Um, and most brethren uh, that I've met, uh, you know, being a spiritual teacher, a lot of brethren will come up and they'll want to relay on a dream to me that they had. And they want, I guess they're looking for me to give an interpretation. They want me to be Joseph in their life and tell them what it means. Um, and I, I, I tell people that I'm following the principles that we learned from this Torah portion about interpreting dreams. I said, before you start taking the dream seriously, look for the confirmation, look for a second dream, look, look for something that ties into it because we have a very powerful statement made by Joseph here. He tells Pharaoh that the reason why he's had the dream twice in a different, you know, different little venue, but it's essentially the same dream because Pharaoh, uh, Joseph says to him, the dreams are one and the same. He says it's because God is telling them this is getting ready to come quickly and this is confirmed by God. In other words, this is now God telling you this is definitely going to happen. This is something prophetic and into the future. And Joseph has been waiting for the, the fulfillment of his dreams. He knows that the Lord has given them to him. And so that's where he's coming from in his basis to be able to interpret Pharaoh's dream. If you remember, when he was down in prison, he interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. And he predicted one of them was going to live and the other one was going to die, and they did, just as he had interpreted their dreams for it. So we have a lot of information about dreams and principles of interpreting dreams and so forth. This Torah portion, in my opinion, is the foremost uh, principled section of the scriptures that addresses the idea of having dreams and trying to understand those that come from the Lord. So part of the study of this portion, the drosh level, are all the principles associated with how do you, having dreams, interpreting dreams, is it, you know, because sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes you might have a dream because you had a little too much garlic in your spaghetti sauce the night before when you had spaghetti. Um, it might agitate your tummy just a little bit and it'll cause you to, you know, have feelings. If you get too cold or chilled at night, can cause you to dream. In other words, any kind of disturbance to you. Whereas these are dreams where the Spirit of the Lord is stirring you uh, to have these particular understandings and thoughts. So Pharaoh has these two dreams, and he, he talks about seven great big cows and then seven gaunt cows coming in eating the seven fat cows. And he talks about these plumps of corn. He talks about these ears of corn, you know, seven of them and then the seven gauntlets, and they consume uh, the other seven. Uh, and so there's, there's two sets of sevens, uh, you know, here in these different symbols trying to say something to it. So he calls for all the magicians, and they cannot interpret them. It's, it's, it, it doesn't mean that they didn't attempt to. It's that Pharaoh wasn't satisfied with any answer that he got from it. He didn't, it didn't in his spirit convince him as to the proper interpretation. So that's when, you know, he hears from his uh, servant, oh, I was in prison, if you remember, and there was this young Hebrew down there, uh, and he interpreted my dream, and it came true, and so forth. So the, um, so the call is from Pharaoh, well, get that guy out of prison, get him up here, you know, so that I can talk to him. So they decided to bring um, 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 Joseph up, 
uh, out of the prison. And it, so let's go to verse 15, and we're going to hear what the rest of this conversation is. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Principle number one about dreams that come from God. God, with, through his spirit, will tell you what it means. It's not because you find the skill in another man. And that's one of the reasons why I, I say to people when they come up and they say, Well, Monty, I've had this dream. Can I explain the dream? Okay. Um, can you tell me what that means? No, I can't, but maybe God can. You know, you know, God can tell you. And by the way, why don't you go back and ask him for the interpretation? You don't need to ask me. Ask him for the interpretation. Ask him if that's a meaningful dream that he wanted you to have. Verse 17, so Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, in my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. Now he follows through and repeats essentially the dream, essentially the way he told the others before. Uh, and here's Joseph's response, verse 25. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. And the seven, um, uh, the dreams are one and the same. And the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after the, them the seven years, the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind shall be seven years of famine. And it is, uh, it is as I spoke to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. That's another principle. Why would you have a dream, a spiritual dream? Because God wants to show something to you, wants to tell you something. Uh, that he, he wants you to have this information uh, about it. This is stuff that comes from God for your benefit. And it's also intended personally for your benefit. This is God who's given you a dream because he personally wants you to have some information indicating to you what is going to be happening and what he's going to do. Uh, verse 29, Behold, seven years of great abundance is, are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them, seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. Now, there's the interpretation. He has explained it very directly in very specific, concrete terms, what is about to happen. So the abundance will be unknown in the land uh, because of the subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Principle, again, another principle. A lot of times people will come to me and they'll say, well, I've had a dream. And I said, wait till you have it twice. Wait till you, wait till you hear it again. You know, wait till God gives it to you on another night. You know, now you're going to deal with it. Honestly, you know, the first time you get it, it's like just hearing a quick report. You don't know if it's the truth or not, except by the evidence of two or three. That's the reason why you, let's have, see if the dream reoccurs. If you have a reoccurring dream, that's very significant. And that's what Joseph teaches us. And now, Pharaoh, and, and now, verse 33, let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise 
and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint others, overseers, in charge of the land, and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land in Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Now let's stop and think about that for a moment. If I was going to have seven good years, and I was then going to have seven years of famine afterwards, why wouldn't I, the seven years of abundance, why wouldn't I take half of it and store it so that I have half in the good years of abundance that I consume and I still have an equal amount for the years of the famine? Why wouldn't I take half? But instead, he says, take one-fifth. So let's add that up a little bit, do a little math. Let's see if there's seven years. That means that I would have the equivalent of one and two-fifths of one of the years of abundance, and I got to make it seven years on one and two-fifths of the amount that was during the years of abundance. Does that math work out for you? Is that, is that, does that make sense to you? Because at first brush, it doesn't seem to do it. How in the world is one-fifth of this year supposed to cover a whole year at a later time? Well, the answer to this obviously is that these years of abundance are way over a normal year. That when it says it's seven years of abundance, it's truly abundance. Like the, it's, it's one year's produce is almost equal to seven years. It's, it's like five, over five years worth of grain on one year. And you have multiple years doing it. Now, one of the things about abundance, it's a little bit like money. <clears throat> uh, every once in a while, you'll get a windfall of money in your budget. And all of a sudden, you, you got a tax return that comes in, uh, something that falls in your favor, and all of a sudden, you've got some extra money in your budget. Guess what you do? Do you save it? Most people don't. Do you go down and slap that in your savings account? Heck no. We start spending it. And in a short period of time, it's spent. The typical response of a family that receives an inheritance from an ancestor Let's say they get a nice inheritance. They'll spend it within six months easily. Uh, they'll consume more than they need. And in the years of abundance, Egypt is going to consume more than they really need. But that was even taken into account by him calling for a fifth of it to be stored, 20% of it be saved um, for the other years that would, that would do it. Essentially, to make it buy, all they needed was 20%, but they got this incredible abundance. What happened to all that, all that grain? They ate it. They, they used it. Um, and that's what people typically do. When you are in a period of abundance and rolling in the dough, you, uh, you uh, spend it. I'm reminded of a, a joke, uh, and I, I do this carefully when I am teaching, but I think this one's kind of appropriate to understand. There's a story told about a fella who uh, he was at a young age and he was graduating from high school with the rest of his classmates. And he had a very rich uncle who passed away and left this incredible inheritance 
to this kid just as he's graduating from high school, 18 years old, and he receives millions of dollars. Now, fast forward, it is 10 years later, and he's back at the 10-year high school reunion. And of course, all of his classmates knew that he had inherited all this money and he, was, he had been rich and, and so forth. One of the classmates finally got up the courage and he went up to him and he said, so, uh, so what, are you, what, are, what are you doing these days? And he was waiting for him to say, oh, I'm living on my yacht and going for whatever. Instead, he said, oh, I'm a cab driver in New York. He said, cab driver, uh, you know, in, in New York. He said, wait a minute, I, aren't, didn't you get a big inheritance? get a lot of money given to you uh, just as you graduate from high school? Oh, yeah, 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 I did. I said, well, if you don't mind my asking, what, what happened? And he said, well, you know, wine, women, and song. Boy, I went on that party, hardy. I had a great time you know, for a bunch of years there. Had a, had a wonderful time. And, and the guy asked me, he said, well, all of it? He, he said, no, no, not all of it. I squandered the rest. And there's a thousand excuses on how to spend that money. And at the end up is you spend it instead of saving it. And I think that what we're looking at here with the abundant years of the grain, that Joseph was wise enough to know I need one-fifth of it to make it for the following seven years because the people are going to consume it and use it and, and uh, things like that. And... and and dispose of it very quickly. They'll consume it quickly. Like the 18-year-old, like the he just went out and spent the heck out of it instead of setting some up for the multi-years and the many out years. By the time he got to 10 years and the deal, it was gone. So we have this very interesting uh, plan where Joseph gives Pharaoh uh, a couple of things. He says, one, you need to find the right guy and you need to have him implement a savings program of one-fifth during the years of abundance to do that. And he goes on to say, um, then verse 35, then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain of food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. And let the food become a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine uh, which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? I want you to take note of divine spirit. In other words, he can speak to the things that God is saying. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all of this, there's no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your uh, command, all the people will do homage. Uh, only in the throne uh, I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. And this is where we get the term the viceroy or the vice king. Uh, of and he's second only to Pharaoh uh, being in that responsible position. Well, Joseph's life changes dramatically. He goes from being falsely accused and spending time in prison, a miserable life, 
uh, being rejected by his brethren. So suddenly he comes out and now he's rewarded greatly. He's going to be given a wife. He's going to have a title. He's going to live in a palace. Uh, a lot of great things are going to happen to him. And in fact, what results in is that he has two sons that are born to him. And in verse um, 51, it says, And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and all of my father's household. Um, Manasseh, that's what it means. It says, I've forgotten the bad things. And then he had a second son who's called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of affliction. Ephraim actually means fruitful and bountiful. And so the first thing is all the trauma I'd had earlier in my life, he's made me to forget that. That's not what my life is. My life, I have a new life now, and I'm now fruitful in abundance uh, in that new life. And he also receives a new name. His new name means the bread man of life. We need to stop for a moment because this is a remez point here in the Torah portion. We're talking about the Messiah. Like Joseph, the Messiah was rejected by his brethren. He was thrown in prison. He was confined, just like Yeshua was. They wanted to confine him. They wanted to make him go away, that he would have no effect anymore. However, the day comes when Joseph comes up out of this prison, out of this pit where he's been living, and God has done this for him and raises him up, gives him title, position, lives in the palace, uh, you know, and, and he's right up there with Pharaoh. Uh, same thing with Yeshua. He goes down into the grave. He comes up out of the grave, goes to sit at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to be in charge of the world here very shortly. Um, and, he's got, and, and as uh, Joseph was the bread man of life, we know that Yeshua is the true bread from heaven. He's pictured in the manna you know, that the, his ancestors will have in the uh, wilderness experience. And so there's a lot of parallels here, what we call the remez, the hint level, things that, about Joseph uh, that speak to what the Messiah will be like. And, um, and some of the results that will happen in Joseph's life are also consistent with the results of what we're anticipating and expecting from the Messiah himself. So there's a great pattern here that speaks to the future of the Messiah and understanding what the Messiah does. And each one of us, when we become believers uh, in the Messiah, does it not say that he gives us a new life, you know, that, that from the other one, you know, the old man dies, the new, the new creature comes forth. And furthermore, uh, when we do, why we receive abundance from the Lord, that's the meaning of Ephraim's name, we, we too receive abundance of grace and mercy and life uh, from God as a result of turning uh, to him. That whole change process that Joseph is talking about, this is what the average believer experience when he comes to know the Lord, comes to know the Messiah. The Messiah. So the, um, the um, uh, famine comes. And uh, so let's see what, what happens in the land. And he said, the seven, the, uh, the, verse 54, And the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, and there was a famine in all the lands, but, all, 
But in all of the land of Egypt, there was no bread. There, oh, excuse me, in the land of Egypt, there was bread. Now, Egypt had the food. Everybody else in the surrounding uh, countries and so forth did not. The famine was very severe over the whole world. So when all of the land of Egypt was uh, famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all of the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. Now, it wasn't just a giveaway. They had to actually purchase it. When, uh, verse 56, when the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold the Egyptians the fam because the famine was severe in the land. So it took money. You know, so the Egyptians, they had an economy and so forth, and they paid money that first year. And verse 57, and the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. So the first thing that people were spending was their money to, uh, to get ready, you know, for and to deal with the famine. Chapter 42, now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, why are you standing and staring at one another? He said, behold, uh, we have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Now go down there, buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. I want you to take note of not 11, because there are 11 brothers, but 10 of them go down. Why did Jacob dispatch 10 of his sons to go do that? If you remember in my previous teaching, we have a huge thematic here. Um, and it has to do with the number 10. The number 10 thematically means throughout the scripture confidence in God. And he's sending 10 brothers down because he's going to put his confidence in God. He's going to preserve us and take care of us. I may have to go buy some grain at this other thing, but it's really God who's going to be taking care of us. Jacob, take 10 brothers, go down there, buy grain. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. And you remember the reason why he's very sensitive about this is because Rachel was his beloved. Rachel had died. And then he's told the story that Joseph has been torn to pieces when he went to check on the welfare of the brethren. And so it was his brother and had sold him, but they led him to believe that a wild beast had attacked Joseph. So he's seen tragedy after tragedy, and he does not want to see tragedy happen to Benjamin. So he restrains Benjamin, says, no, you have to stay with me. The brothers will go down and do it. And that's the reason why the mathematics works out coincidentally that 10 go down and the one remains. Now, I want, to, want you to take note of something here. Do you remember the dream of Joseph that he had? It was 11 brothers that bowed down to him in both dreams. It was 11 that bowed, not 10, and it just didn't say, it, it was specifically 11 brothers. So these 10 brothers are going to go down and they're going to meet Joseph. They won't realize it's Joseph being the viceroy of Egypt. And Joseph is going to remember the dream. My brothers are coming and bowing down before me. 
But if you remember the dream, it was 11. Not, that's the reason why it's going to prompt him to ask about his other brother. He's going to get these brothers to talk about Benjamin and what's the status on Benjamin because I'm expecting to see Benjamin. And as this story unfolds, Joseph is going to grant uh, them to purchase some food, the 10 brothers, and, but uh, he's, he's going to accuse them falsely of being spies really put them under a lot of pressure. And he's going to take Simeon of one of the ten brothers, and he's going to put him in jail. And the other brothers get to go back. Why, why is Simeon? Well, because he knew that Simeon was the guy amongst the brethren who said, when Joseph approached, let's kill him. So he's going to take Simeon, who was the guy who instigated and started his rejection with the brethren, and he's going to specifically put him under pressure, putting him in prison. And the other brothers get to go back. And the condition is, I will not release Simeon, your brother, to you, unless you bring your other brother, Benjamin, to prove that what you've said is correct. You're not spies and you have another brother and you have an old father and you've told me the background story. So I want to see this other younger brother to prove the story. And this is now when the dream that Joseph had is now guiding him uh, in a wise way to deal with his brethren. And you can tell what's at work here is that Joseph is being patient with his brothers, but he's trying to work out how do we resolve this great conflict between me and my brothers? Because my brothers rejected me. They didn't value my life. They didn't want me as a brother. They, they sold me. They got rid of me. Um, and he, and there's, there needs to be a little bit of justice here. And so he's carrying out justice, but he's doing it in such a way that the brothers are going, oh my God, God has found us out. He knows what we've done. God, God is the one that's punishing me. Not Joseph is punishing me. Uh, it's, it's God is punishing us. And so essentially uh, they, um, they come to buy the grain. In um, chapter 42, we have this discussion about where he accuses them of being spies. And they said, no, no, we're honest men. We're all brothers of the same father. We're not scattered vagabonds and so forth. Uh, and he, he challenged them, if you're an honest man, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, you may go carry grain for the famine of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. So they take off and they say, okay, we got it. So they go back. And it's not too long after that that they start running out of food again. And Jacob says, hey, we got we to gotta go back down there and buy some more grain, buy some more food. And, and to get Simeon released. Well, Jacob doesn't want to allow Benjamin to go back down again. And it comes down to the sons try to explain to Jacob, look, there's no sense in us going back down again other than to get ourselves arrested if we come to try to buy grain and we don't bring the younger brother because the, that man down in Egypt insisted 
we got to bring that younger brother to prove that we're honest men, men of the father. And this is very, very difficult for Jacob to accept. To finally get him to accept it, Judah, not Reuben, not others that are older than Judah, Judah stands up and begins to emerge as a leader amongst the brothers. And he goes to his father and he makes a proposal to his father. And he says, uh, chapter 42 and verse 9, I myself will be a surety for him. I will stand in for him. There is a huge uh, messianic theme here uh, because that's what the Messiah has done for us. He has stood in for us. He pays the price for us. And Judah is offering to Jacob and says, I will stand in for Benjamin. I will guarantee him come back. And if, oh, by the way, he doesn't come back, I'm the one that will pay the price. I'm the one that you can blame me and, and I'm the one that will be responsible because I'm guaranteeing you, Jacob, my father, that I will bring your youngest son, Benjamin, back uh, to you. And so again, uh, Jacob then relents and he allows this to happen. According to the rest of our story here in chapter 42 and so forth, they return and Joseph receives them gladly. He says, oh, this is your younger brother. And he treats his younger brother in a very kindly way. He speaks blessings over him. You know, may God be gracious to you. And, and then there comes a, a special meal where they serve and extra portions are given to Benjamin. And he arranges the brothers in their age uh, um, and, and according to their rank and age and how they were born, and they're all amazed that uh, he could do that, and he understands that, and, and, uh, and they watch uh, Joseph give gifts to Benjamin and so forth. I want to remind everybody that Benjamin's name means the son of my right hand. And the, by the way, that's another Ramez hint about the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? He sits at the right hand of the Almighty um, from that. The... Um, and the brothers are somewhat amazed by it. Well, everything's going great. And uh, so uh, Joseph is there having this feast with them. They get done and they load up uh, their sacks with the grain as for them to return. Simeon's with them, Benjamin. Everybody's going back home. Judah's going, hey, this worked out great. We got Simeon back out of prison. Uh, we got, uh, we got uh, Benjamin is with me. We're all going home. And lo and behold, they open up the sacks and they say, oh my gosh, our, our money is in the sacks. Not only did we get the grain, but we have our money back. I mean, there's just all these good things are happening. And so the stage is now set since everybody's on this high thing that as soon as they leave, all of a sudden, uh, Joseph sends out servants to stop them and makes this incredible accusation against them. Says, I had this cup the special cup that I divine with, and you have stolen that. I treated you graciously. I gave you food. I gave you money. I gave you your brothers back. But then you used that to steal from me. A great offense has taken place. Well, of course, Judah and the others, they said, with, with, that's false. There is no way. Well, they said, well, we're going to have to inspect your sacks. So they proceed to go through 
And lo and behold, Benjamin's sack has the cup. Now, there's something kind of fascinating about this cup, and I don't, I don't have enough time to go into great details with you about it. However, this was a very unique cup. Now, most of you are thinking, well, a little goblet thing and a stem and, and so forth. Not quite. This, this particular cup, it is believed, uh, the reason why it was a unique cup that only Joseph had, had been specially made for him. And what it was, it was a, looked like a flower. And there was this holder, and then fitting in were these multiple pieces, like the petals of a flower, that sat in this thing, and they, they attached together, and it became a cup that would hold. But these individual pieces could be taken out, and what had been taken out, what had actually been stolen, was just one piece of the cup, and which rendered the cup unusable. But this one piece had been taken from it. So they're referring to it as his cup of divination. And again, it wasn't mysticism that we're talking about. It was that he was known for knowing what God was going to do, what God was doing. And so they called it his divining. He would use this cup to bless the Lord. He would bless the Lord uh, with it. So taking one piece from this cup uh, would dis essentially destroy the cup. I mean, you can't, it's more than just stealing from it. It is like highly disrespectful and doing all kinds of damage. And this was a grievous offense. And so essentially they get arrested and they are hauled back before Joseph. And now they are deeply in trouble. Now, this trip, which was Judah was thinking, this was going to be wonderful. Everything worked out according to plan. All of a sudden, it's a complete disaster. And the, uh, they, they figure they're all going to be in trouble. And, of course, the, the answers come back, and only, only the one who stole the cup will pay with his life. Well, here's Benjamin. The very goal that Judah was had was to get Benjamin back, besides get some food and get Simeon back. I want you to notice that Simeon is like the lowest priority in this objective. I mean, that goes to show you how, how much these brothers loved each other. That's a whole other discussion, by the way, that there wasn't a lot of love amongst these brothers. And if you go and stop and... Um, let, well, let me comment on that for just a moment. Uh, you know, the Jewish people um, have been oppressed by many of their enemies. Have been Harm has been done to them by a host of different nations and peoples and so forth. But if you stop and be honest with yourself, and I'm speaking as a Jewish person, uh, who's been the most harmful to us? as a people, who, who's been our own brethren. Jews have done more harm to Jews than any of our enemies have. And it's well known and understood. Jews will scorn one another. Uh, the, the, the sons of Israel will scorn each other, discard each other, not love each other, you know, and so forth. We do not love our other brethren. I want to point that out because... 
This is a very important subject to the Messiah. The love of the fellow brothers is at the foremost of the Messiah's teaching. In fact, he brought this point up to explain that if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to be the bondservant of me, he said, to be my bondservant, you'll be shown to be my bondservant by your love of the brethren. And in the faith, one of the things that we're trying to, a goal that we have before us, is to love one another in the faith. Um, that if we know that this is a person who believes in the same Messiah as we do, that we want to express our love to one another. And as you know, and I'm sure you're all familiar with this, um, we have more trouble with fellow believers with one another than we do with unbelievers a lot of times. You know, unbelievers, it's, it's obvious as all get out, but we have this constant struggle amongst ourselves as brethren. And that was what was the atmosphere of Jacob's sons. There were constant, you know, hassles uh, between them. And, and the enthusiasm for one another had waned greatly because of the struggles, the envy, the strife, and so forth. We have the same thing in the faith today. A lot of people will bring this up as a subject called unity. You know, I've heard lots of people, oh, we need unity in the faith. Well, we do. Well, I agree. Unity in the faith comes if you love one another. If you love one another and treat one another in that way, everybody gets along fine. The reason we have disunity is because we don't love one another. And so lots of people will preach about the, the need for us to having unity in the faith and so forth. We can see the example of the problem right here in Joseph's brethren. And we can see the things that God tries to do overcoming. And the reason why God specifically says, the Messiah says, you, you'll be my bondservants if you show love for one another. You know, I love my master, I love my wife and children, my master, and I love the brethren of the master. You know, you have to have a very powerful testimony for you to be the bondservant of Yeshua the Messiah. And at the, for, at, at, the, at the conclusion of it, it has to be very visible you love the brethren. And uh, we brethren amongst us, somebody crosses each other just a little bit. Do we forgive each other? Heck no. Oh, we go through the motions. Oh, please forgive me, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I forgive me. But then there's a breach in the relationship when we can't stand each other. And we banish each other and banish ourselves. And, and, you know, there's no unity. And the reason is, brethren, is because we're Jacob's sons. We don't like each other. We don't get along with each other. Despite all the urging and despite we all know what the common goal is for all of us, well, we just don't want to do it. And so as a result, you know, the Messiah focused in on this, particularly um, about trying to teach us to be his bondservants. We have to lay all that stuff down and we have to love each other. And so that um, that's the only way we're going to have unity in the faith. Now, uh, those who have approached me and said, well, Monty, what, what do you propose? You're a Torah teacher and so forth. I understand the problem. I can tell you what the answer is, but nobody wants to do it. So what can we do? What, what can we reasonably expect? Well, I already know the solution to this problem. I know exactly when we'll all be in unity and when we'll all love one another. I, I, 
And oh, by the way, it's not when the Messiah comes. It'll be before the Messiah comes. I can tell you exactly. It's not a revival. Okay? It's not when God pours out the Holy Spirit on everybody and everybody just goo-goo loves each other. No. It's when all of our lives are being threatened and you're facing potential death and harm. Then, when you're against that, then when you look to your brother, you'll suddenly realize that guy, is, that brother's not going to kill me and he's not going to hurt me. I'm safer to be with him than I am with other people. So I'll choose to be in agreement with him because my life depends on it. By the way, that was always true. It's just a lot of people don't recognize it. They don't realize it. I have had brethren um, who loved me, had a good relationship, and now have decided I'm not worthy of their friendship. And for whatever reason, they decided they're doing a just thing by, quote, cutting me off, rejecting me. And here's the funny part about this whole deal. I know there's a day coming, and this is the way God does these things. And you can see this being done here by Joseph with his brothers. I know there's a day coming when they're going to be coming back to me and they're going to be begging me for their life. So I've already made up my mind that I'm going to be graciously receiving them. But I need to wait for them to come to terms with that before we can have unity again. Um, you and I, living in the end of the age, these last days, I want to remind you of something about how we get along with one another as brethren. I have this promise from God. It came through my father, Abraham, and I'm one of his descendants. So the promise that was given to Abraham is extended down to me. I'm one of the heirs of Abraham and his covenants with God and the blessings and the promises. And one of the promises that was given to Abraham, this part of my heritage that I have today is, the Lord has said to me, just as he said to my father Abraham, I will bless those that bless thee, and I will curse those that curse you. And by the way, I don't care if you are a brother in the faith. That promise applies. So if you're one of my brethren, and you want to curse me, you don't want to bless me, you're going to pay the price. I, I'm not going to make you pay the price. The Lord's going to make you pay the price. And oh, by the way, it works in the reverse too. If we get in a squabble with someone, I am not going to curse you. I am not going to purposely cut you off because I know you have a promise from God that I'll be blessed if I bless you and I'll be cursed if I curse you. So you know what I'm going to continue to do? I'm going to still continue to try to find a way to extend a blessing to you. Now that's loving your brother. Despite what they do, I will still continue to love you, brother. I want that blessing. I don't want the curses. And I think amongst us brethren, we tend to forget that. We forget that this person that we're being obstinate to, they have a promise from God, and that if you curse them, you will be cursed. That if you'll bless them, you'll get a blessing. And the same thing applies to me. So if we understand this and know this thing to be correct, how should that temper our behavior toward one another, even in the midst of a conflict or a misunderstanding? 
maybe we should be a little bit more gracious to one another. Maybe we should be willing to humble up and lay down our so-called, I'm the judge of this situation, and just be one of the brethren. Again, we're talking about the subject of unity. The best study case that we have to understand these kinds of conflicts and how it really should be resolved is to look at the story of Jacob's sons and the story of them and Joseph. Joseph will persevere in loving and being gracious to his brethren despite what they've thought of him. And at this particular point in the story where we're at, I can assure you, <laughs> the brethren of Joseph flat have forgotten Joseph. They don't even think he exists anymore. And little do they know that Joseph is right there in their midst. He knows everything that's going on. And there's going to be a day of reckoning when all that comes home, all them chickens come back to the roost. So it, this makes for a fascinating study for us and there's a tremendous application for us. Let us not behave as Jacob's sons did with one another. Rather, let us learn what Joseph did in being wise in dealing with his brethren and continuing to be gracious and kind to them. Our portion uh, comes up into chapter 44. And again, they're being confronted at this point with, with the realities of, of what has just taken place. That they stole this particular piece of this cup. Uh, it's interfered with him. It's a very personal offense that has taken place. Lots of justification for judgment, by the way. Uh, and yet now the brothers are put into the position where the only thing that they have that they can do is to beg for mercy. By the way, in our relationship with, with the Lord, when it's a, you're not going to go and rationalize and justify your behavior to the Lord. He ain't going to listen to it. You will have an opportunity, though, to beg for mercy. And maybe you ought to put your energies into that, asking for God's mercy for your own shortcomings. And certainly amongst our own brethren, to ask for mercy and grace from one another and to extend mercy and grace to one another in that. Which brings us up to the beginning of our next portion for next week, chapter 44. And in this uh, next week's portion, it's going to have Judah, who was the guy who was the surety for Benjamin, will make this impassioned plea for the release of Benjamin. Not the release for the brethren, not the release for Simeon and so forth, but the release of Benjamin, who's innocent, but he's the one that got caught with the thing, and they don't understand how that happened. Benjamin didn't do it, but somehow they got involved. You want to hear a fascinating little conclusion to this whole thing? Um, there is a, uh, a teaching, Torah teachers teach this, that the servant who put that piece of that cup into uh, Benjamin's sack and thus the resulting conflict with Judah and Joseph, that that was Ephraim that did that, that Ephraim had been dispatched 
by Joseph, his father, you, you put that thing in his sack and told specifically which one to put it in. The reason why they do that is because from this point forward with the children of Israel down in Egypt and coming out, there's going to be this very distinctive relationship that emerges between Ephraim and Judah. And it makes its way all the way into the history of Israel, referred to as the house of Ephraim, which is the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, which is of the southern kingdom. Ephraim is the northern kingdom. That this great division that is in all of the whole house of Israel, that it originated way back here in this story. And the Bible is filled of where little things happen with the fathers that results in the descendants. And one of the themes is what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. So there is this, uh, let me just give you, this is a colorful commentary from the rabbis, from those who teach the Torah, that the servant that was told by Joseph to put that in Benjamin's sack, that was Ephraim that did that and accomplished that. Which makes for kind of a fascinating thought as to, I guess there's nothing new under the sun with the Lord. He knows about us. He knows what we're doing. And maybe we need to pay a closer attention to what the Lord's doing. Maybe we could learn from this Torah portion how to behave today amongst our own brethren. I hope that works out for all of us and, you know, before we have to desperately rely on one another. It would be good if we would obey the teaching of the Lord and follow the teaching of the Torah. Be to our credit, to our blessing. So with that, Shabbat Shalom. Have a great Sabbath. Thank you.